Mobile is so huge. It is a four trillion or three trillion dollar influence on society. And today on episode number 250 of CXO Talk, we are speaking with two of the top mobile experts in the world. I want to say thank you to HelpShift for underwriting this episode of CXO Talk. HelpShift provides a customer service platform for mobile apps that is used by the largest organizations in the world. And their CEO, Abhinash Tripathi, has been a guest on this show. It's a great company, and thank you so much to HelpShift. And I also want to shout out to Livestream for providing our video streaming infrastructure. Those guys are great and have supported us since the beginning. So, our two guests today, we have an incredible professor from NYU, Anindyo Ghosh, and we have Kevin Henriksen from Microsoft. Hey, Kevin, how are you? Awesome. Thanks for having me on the show. Kevin, tell us about Accompli and tell us how did that morph into Outlook? Sure. So, um, quickly, yeah, we, uh, I've been doing email for 15 or 16 years now in various versions. And as uh, my last venture was winding down, we were thinking about what to do next. And clearly one of the frustrations was, you know, dealing with email on your phone. Um, and at the time, Mailbox had just been uh, purchased by Dropbox, which was a consumer email app. And as I was talking to some of my friends and uh, good friend Satish Dharmaraj, who's a venture capitalist at Redpoint, was saying, hey, somebody should really build a great enterprise email app that works on the phone that, you know, works with Exchange. And so um, we built uh, Accompli. Uh, and after about 18 months, Microsoft agreed um, that it was a great idea and uh, decided to purchase the company. And so we were looking at to license some of the technology to them uh, and they acquired the company. And then shortly thereafter, a few weeks after we were acquired, they renamed the app uh, to Outlook. Uh, and it's been growing as Outlook uh, for the last two and a half years. And can you share with us the rough number of users just so we get a sense of the scale at which your product operates? Sure. I think publicly we say tens of millions. But you know, there's a billion Office users in the world and, um, that use Microsoft Office. And so you can imagine that there's, there's lots of users on the, on the device today. Okay, so that's, that's pretty large scale. Now, Anindo, tell us about your research and what, ha what have you been studying and what have been some of the key lessons about mobile that you've learned? And, uh, and please hold up your book for us so that we can get everybody to take a look. Okay, so that's my book. It's called uh, Tap, Unlocking the Mobile Economy. Um, so I first started you know, looking at this topic uh, about 2007 or 10 or so years back when the first iPhone, the first smartphone came out. And I essentially was sort of you know, intrigued by what I started seeing, you know, consumer behavior on these devices, as in we started spending more and time, more and more time on these devices. And as we started spending more and more time on these devices, it made sense for you know, uh, companies and advertisers to spend more money on the devices because that's where the eyeballs and impressions are. Um, but the next few years, uh, what I saw was uh, quite the opposite, that even though consumers spending of time increase on mobile devices, you know, companies were not in, as enthusiastic in pumping money appropriately. In fact, they continue to put more and more money in you know, print, traditional media channels like print, print and newspapers and magazines. And in fact, uh, between 2012 and 2015, 
we had this massive inefficiency where you know consumers were spending like 25% of their time on these devices and advertisers were only pumping in 4 or 5% of their ad money on mobile devices. And so what I've basically been curious about is why that gap exists um, and existed rather and how should companies be thinking about monetizing that gap? I want to remind everybody that right now there is a tweet chat going on on Twitter using the hashtag CXOTalk, and you can tweet in questions for our guests and we will try to answer them. So, so Kevin, this notion of the mobile economy and the gap that Anindo was just talking about, what, what do you see at Microsoft operating at the, at the mobile scale at which you do? It's been incredible, right? To, you know, for since us joining Microsoft, the influence of mobile and the direction since Satya has kind of taken over at Microsoft has made a huge transition in terms of uh, the, the focus that we had on mobile, kind of Microsoft leading up to it. I mean, clearly Microsoft has had, you know, versions of, of Windows uh, running on the phone. But clearly, you know, the, the dominant platforms today are delivered by Apple and Google. And so I think that was a, a hole that Microsoft is, you know, kind of filling. But more importantly, uh, seeing how Office and how the various apps inside of Microsoft that people use every day have transitioned from what was primarily uh, the desktop or PC as the primary way that they interact with it to now be, um, you know, mobile is becoming more and more important, you know, as, as we all walk around or as we do something throughout the day, we generally carry a mobile device where we may have a PC, you know, in our bag or a laptop or a tablet, but the device that we pull out most frequently, you know, um, is that mobile phone. And we think, see things like the, you know, the session time, you know, the time people spend in their email app on the phone is, is in the 20 to 25 second range. So, I mean, so literally they pull it up, do a couple quick things, you know, either seeing where their next meeting is, triage a couple mails, quickly respond to something, um, but being able to fight for that attention, right? And even an app that, you know, is launched hundreds of times a day, but for something that is, you know, just 20 seconds is kind of a window into the way that, you know, I know I use it personally, but it also, you know, kind of our broader user base uses the phone. And so watching the transition of the way that, you know, the way you build apps and the way you present applications and, and, the, and the types of things that users want to do on the device is very different than the kind of Microsoft of, you know, 20 or 30 or even 10 years ago in terms of being much more PC-centric um, and much more in terms of the desktop-type form factor with a keyboard. And so there's just lots to think about it, but it's an exciting time to be part of that transition. Anindo, does that explain that, that then the nature of the kind of interaction that takes place on mobile versus desktop, does that explain this rise in mobile or is there more to it than that? No, I mean, I think, you know, like Kevin said at the beginning, the, the, the fundamental distinction between mobile and desktop is, you know, mobile by definition is portable, unlike a desktop. So that means you're carrying the phone with you, uh, you know, wherever you go. And increasingly, as we get more and more sort of, you know, immersed and embedded on the device, you're literally, the device is literally on you. Like there are, you know, we've seen instances where uh, people are taking it to the shower rooms. Even while they are taking a shower, they can't get away from their phone. So I think the portability is directly because of uh, increasing time that you're spending um, on, on these devices. But at the same time, you know, what is also happening is uh, consumers are also very heterogeneous in their preferences for what they expect from, from companies who are reaching out to them on their phones. So, you know, um, a lot of what I talk about in my book is this interesting behavioral contradiction between 
uh, what consumers think they care about versus you know what they actually in fact really care about. Um, an example of this is uh, this issue of you know how valuable the data it really is. So. The vast majority of people will say, yeah, we really care about the privacy for data and we really care about uh, you know, protecting our data and so on. But what I've seen in the last 10 years, and not just in the US, but you know, in Europe and in Asia and elsewhere, is that increasingly we are willing to give up our data for either more convenience or for uh, some economic benefit. And while that while that shift is driven by you know the I generation, the folks for, uh, born after 1995, and also by the millennials, but it's also sort of moving on to the other demographics as well. So it's really fascinating, and I, I you know like Kevin, I'm also very excited to be in this space uh, and just learning more every day about people's behavior, about how companies should be thinking about these things, and so on. I think that the point about international is pretty interesting because I think. One of the things and a lot of the growth that obviously we see, and I'm sure you saw as your research, is you go to countries like India and China where the PC uh, penetration was much lower. And so there's an entire generations or multiple generations that never kind of got the PC era, right? And in, in yeah. uh, more established countries, you know, or the US or in Europe, you know, they went through a pretty significant PC generation where there was lots and lots of PCs. The average information worker had one. The, you know, your plumber that would come to your house had a PC somewhere, probably not at, with him, but at home. And now, you know, you go to places like India and China where that, the PC never became that popular. Yeah. Yet, um, you know, the mobile phone, everyone has a mobile phone. And, and that, I think, is part of the growth while we're seeing, you know, mobile just crush in terms of ter desktop numbers, but also, like I said, how people use them because it's reaching every kind of economic, geographic, and social uh, kind of mm -hmm. corner where the PC didn't get there. And so I think that's, you know, attributing to a lot of the growth. And, and in, in our case, you know, where a lot of the growth is growing faster, right? Where the business is making, you know, you know more and more uh, adoption of, of mobile technology. Yeah, and, and, you know, one of the most fascinating things about that leapfrogging that you mentioned in countries like India and China is the average consumer is basically not accustomed to the idea that when they are on the internet, right, they are going to be, uh, there's going to be a communication between them and the firm, as in a firm is able to reach out to you with a message, okay? Um, so having leapfrogged the desktop revolution, uh, the first experience on the internet for a lot of these people was on the mobile device. And so for them, it's like, if I'm on a mobile device, it's okay for a company to reach out to me with an offer or with a message. That's how the world works. So there's also that experience, which is, you know, somewhat unique in Asia. And that also raises some very interesting propositions for, you know, new models for monetizing consumer behavior on these devices. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And it's funny how you see companies... You know, I'll use Uber as an example of, a, of an app that I use that, that has a very different experience depending on where you go. Now, since yeah. then, they've exited the China market particularly, right. but, you know, the, this, you know, and obviously DDN over there, you know, was, was a much, you know, kind of one at some level and also was a very interactive. But the way that like Uber notifies you or the way apps notify you in the U.S. or how they interact with you is much lighter, right? Like they don't promote you and send you promotions, but you land in China and you turn on mm -hmm. Uber and once Uber detects that, hey, you're in China... Like literally you're getting four or five push notifications a day about a promotion or try this or, oh, you're by this restaurant. And like, you know, they were obviously already tracking your location and had all this data and knew your preferences already. But it was really interesting to see how the, the, the way that the, the consumer, you know, is used to that because clearly they're doing something that, you know, in the U.S. they would, you know, probably get people, people would push back a lot more on because they're not used to that notion of like aggressive 
uh, kind of notifications and marketing. And then the, you know, to, to show some of the gap where, the, where there's still opportunity is that when I come back to the US still for weeks, I kept getting push notifications from China and all of the promotions because they didn't detect that, oh, by the way, I'm back in the US, stop the marketing machine that you know, I had triggered by kind of turning the app on in China. But yeah, I, I love the idea of thinking about, it's not just that you're reaching a new segment of users, you're reaching a segment of users that uh, wasn't accustomed to, the, to, to that kind of relationship of how a company and a human interacted or, you know, or a user interacted on the phone. And now they're, you know, people are like, hey, this is a two-way conversation. And I'm constantly like, you know, when I'm on WeChat in China, like I'm opting into all kinds of things. And that turns into this crazy, like kind of couponing just the way direct mail in the US, you know, every time you go to the mailbox, you see a stack of things that you didn't really order. But you're like, hey, you know, one out of 10, sometimes it's interesting. You're like, oh, this is a coupon for a place that I actually go. I'm going to keep it, right? Uh, where where in, yeah. China, in India, you see these promotions and uh, super interesting. Anindo, this this notion of mobile customer experience or, or mobile experience, maybe you can talk about the importance of that. It seems like that's a very imp- common theme that's underlying all of this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so uh, one of the things that I've found in working with a lot of these companies is that the biggest complaint people have uh, with, uh, with with mobile ads is that, you know, it's the high frequency and the low relevancy of that, right? So basically the idea is, you know, I open up a mobile browser or a mobile app and I'm going to be, you know, inundated and overwhelmed with ads and offers that have been sent at a frequency that is too much and at a relevancy that's too low. So they want it the other way around. They want it to be high relevancy and low frequency, but right now it's high frequency and low relevancy. And the reason is, is because advertisers are still like throwing darts in the air, hoping that one of them will hit the bullseye, right? They don't know enough about our preferences because the data is all in silos and if somebody has to stitch it all together, it's all out there, but somebody has to do the job of stitching it together. In the absence of, you know, a, a profile that is precise and accurate that's not been properly stitched, what the advertisers can do is throw 10 darts, like Kevin was saying, hoping that one, one of them will stick, yeah? So what I've argued in my book also, you know, with a number of use cases where we've seen some success is the mobile device in terms of user experience should be used like a butler, like a concierge, not like a stalker. Okay, right now, it's, it's a bit like you know, throwing, throwing me 10 offers in, in a two-hour period is a bit like stalking me. You know, most people don't like that. What you want to do is you want to show me one offer in a period of time that's relevant and highly targeted, and that's what the concierge or the butler does. Yeah, I love that kind of c- comparison, right? I, uh, I, I don't know, I've used these virtual assistants, right? So Fancy Hands, Finn, you know, Magic, there's tons of them out there that are, that are trying to act like your virtual butler uh, yeah. at some level, right? But, but still, like, you end up having to teach them too much, right? Because you need to tell them, hey, I'm going here, I'm doing this, or this is the way I want, you know, when you book my flight or when you book a hotel room, I don't want extra pillows and, you know, whatever kind of random things over time that, again, some of those your device will know, uh, but generally the profiles of those companies that you've stayed with, whether it's the Starwood Hotel chain or Hilton Hotel chain, or I fly Alaska and they know that I always want window seats if the flight's more than this many hours, but uh, you know I may want aisle seats on certain kinds of flights. Whatever those preferences are, clearly they have that data. Yeah. In silos, right? There's no way to teach my butler that. Okay. And even Alaska at some levels, when I go to the Alaska website, I still have to pick the seat that I want. And they, you know, no matter even if I tell them I prefer one thing, it, it's not automatic, right? And so I think the opportunity for that to get, you know, just magnitudes better as we find ways to kind of have the data share across silos or 
more importantly, that data be more personal and kind of carried with me on my device versus being siloed with a given organization or a company. We have some questions from Twitter, and I would want to remind everybody that there's a tweet chat going on with hashtag CXO talk. And I want to, again, thank HelpShift for underwriting this episode of CXO Talk. You guys are totally awesome, and I'm very grateful to that. Um, what about, we have a question from Twitter, and Taylor Davis is asking about digital experiences and content. Any thoughts on that? Anindo, what do you think about, about the, the changing nature of experience on mobile? Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what I've learned over time is that mobile has made us less patient, you know, um, in the sense that um, while the mobile economy has obviously, you know, we benefited from the emergence of you know, all sorts of business models, whether it's sharing economy, uh, like Uber or Lyft or Airbnb or instant groceries or instant ordering your wine and beer. It's just made us, uh, you know, in some ways uh, less patient and maybe a bit more lazy. Um, but in terms of sort of the, you, you know, the experience, if, if he's talking about experience uh, outside of this, um, then, it, uh, then it really boils down to the engagement that users have had with, uh, you know, content on mobile devices. I think we still have a long way to go. I mean, over time, you've learned a few things about the usual you know, tricks of the trade, responsive design websites, you know, apps that are minimizing the number of ads in them and so on and so forth. Um, but I think we still have a long way to go because of the trade-off that I mentioned between relevancy and frequency of messaging, right? So what has to happen is that the frequency of messaging has to come down and the relevancy has to go up in some ways to find that sweet spot. Um, and the good news, at least, with all the use cases that I mentioned in the book is those companies where we worked in making this happen, it's actually feasible. It's actually possible. It's not, you know, it's not none of this is rocket science. It can, it can be done. Um, so that's the that's the good news. Yeah, I think that's a good the, the point about not, not being rocket sciences is is super resonates because a lot of these things is as you as a user you think about like on your day-to-day -day life, like I just want something to be easier, right? Like I, I want you to remove friction. Uh, yeah. and the device has all this context and the device knows all this about me. And a lot of times it's very simple, like just provide me a, a way to do that. And you know, like a super simple example like on email is that you know you frequently get you know, somebody emails you a large presentation, and you're on your device and, you know, apps of the years ago, you would, if I wanted to send that to somebody else, like I wanted to send Michael that presentation or reply to Michael's email and send a presentation that Aninda sent me, I would have to go to the email and either forward it or download the attachment, reattach it. And of course, on a mobile device, A, that's like a ton of thumb gymnastics. And there's, you know, if I'm on the airport running between flights, my Wi-Fi is a little dicey, right? Well, today, you know, we, you know, we provide a feature in Outlook that where you say, hey, I reply to Michael's email, I can attach from, you know, attachments I've seen before, right? Like it's clearly it's in the cloud, it knows that attachment, I can grab that attachment, attach it without having to download it, just attach it by ID. But you can think of a multitude of use cases where you're like, the data is there, right? Companies have that data, or, mm -hmm. you know, the, the device has the context. It's just we need to redefine the content or the apps to be able to take advantage of that so that the users will do it. Because you provide those paths for the user, they become incredibly uh, useful and incredibly, you know, that gives, you know, and from our case, like tons of retention, right? Because users say, hey, this is the way that I know how to do that. And it saves me 12 taps and I can do it when I'm running between flights or on, you know, questionable network uh, connectivity. 
So that question, that issue of retention, is that the key metric? Are there other metrics that we should be thinking about in terms of evaluating mobile and mobile experience? I guess it depends on, you know, which part of the ecosystem you're talking to. Uh, this ecosystem, you know, is a big one. It's a complex one, you know, starting from telecom providers to, you know, hardware manufacturers to the operating system folks to the ad tech networks sitting in the middle between brands and publishers. And, you know, everybody is invested in this ecosystem, but they all have their own metrics. So, for example, you know, if you're talking to uh, an advertiser or the ad tech platforms, you know, they are looking at engagement rates. Um, so I'm going to send you, I'm going to show you five different ads over a period of time. Are you going to be engaging with any of them? If you are engaging, how long are you engaging? Right. So um, based on you know who you talk to, they'll have essentially different uh, engagement metrics. And what, what, what I find also very fascinating is, you know, how telecom providers are moving into this whole ad tech space. Uh, we saw this with the Verizon, AOL, Yahoo deals. We are seeing this with AT&T, Time Warner, and we'll continue to see this more and more. Um, and so the same telecom providers who would previously be interested more in voice minutes and internet usage and text messages, you know, their own metrics and KPIs are now changing in similar ways to what the ad tech platforms are thinking about. So. I just find this whole uh, mesh fascinating. Yeah, I mean, Xfinity is launching their own mobile network, right? Like Comcast, right? Which is, you know, right. you think of a cable provider, now they're launching a mobile network, right? And saying, hey, we've set up enough home cable modems and they've got that feature in there where you turn on and it kind of turns into a public Wi-Fi hotspot, right? For every cable modem. So now you roam, you know, through the neighborhoods and you're going to be basically running a mobile phone off shared, you know, kind of backhaul from their networks, right? And you think of like even them looking at mobile. And I, you know, I think retention is super important for apps per app builders uh, only because it's the, it's, it's one of the things you can control, right? Like if, if, if you build a better app and like, you know, you, yes, you can, you know, go and spend marketing money or have a great brand or all these things. And that, you know, can change the shape of your funnel. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're losing all the users at the bottom, cause they're not retained, then, you know, you're, you're not doing, you're not building an app that's serviced to users, right? Cause we always joke like users haven't stopped using their phones, right? They're still using their phones. They're just not using your app. They've either found another way to do that purpose, or you haven't provided enough kind of call it the lazy factor that allows them to go do it, right? Like there's 10 different ways I can order food to come to my house on my phone, right? Through different websites, through different apps and like, which one do I go back to is the one that's made it the friction friction list and can do it at time, right? There's apps that work during the day, during dinner time, there's tons of options. But if I want, you know, a snack at 5am or super late night, like that's a different set of things. And so, you know, looking for that and, and seeing apps that build on those is like, where do those dollars end up going, right? I'm trying to go, you know, buy a burrito or something at, at a certain time of day, like, where do I send that dollars, right? And then if you from an ad provider, it's monetization, right there, at the end of the day, their main lever is how are they making money? And that goes back to this engagement model. So, so. yeah, and, you know, because, because of the retention that you're talking about, the importance of retention of our apps, you know, we've now seen how app stores, you know, whether it's Apple or, or Google Play, they have revised the algorithm they use to rank these apps. Earlier, it used to be based on downloads and the number of downloads. Now, in fact, they're moving away from all of this. In fact, they're focusing pretty much on actual usage, actual retention. How much time are you spending in the app? How many sessions do you actually spend in a given period of time? How deep do you go within an app? So that also explains you know, why retention is such an important metric for app developers. And for the providers, it makes a ton of sense, right? Because you know, at the end of the day, if you're using tons of apps on my iOS device or tons of apps on Android, like the more apps you're using, the stronger your relationship with that app store model becomes. 
in the sense that then the stronger your relationship with their underlying platform becomes. This is such an interesting issue. So you, so when you talk about retention, you can control retention through user experience and through the design of your mobile app. It really hammers home the importance of user experience. And at the end of the day, the, that user experience is kind of the bedrock. Totally. I mean, you know, when you plot the distribution of you know, usage of apps over time, what happens is uh, the average smartphone user has approximately 30 apps on his or her smartphone, but they're really using less than six apps on a, on, on a regular basis. So when you plot the distribution, you see this long tail and, you know, nobody wants to be in the tail, everybody wants to be in the head. But then the head, the top 10 or the top 100 apps are dominated by a handful, half a dozen companies, right? So Facebook and Google between them have like nine of the top 10 apps or something like that. Yeah, and I mean, the, the usage of these apps, right, is really driven by like, you know, again, what is the experience? Are you getting users to want to stay in the app, right? We always talk about like, you know, apps, there's lots of apps that are designed to waste more time. Like Facebook is, their whole goal is to say, Don't, please never leave this app, right? The next photo that's coming, the next one, they bait you into like, you know, wasting time. And then you look at apps that are kind of in the space where I work is more productivity apps. Like our goal is to give you time back, right? Like you don't want to go into and spend hours and hours reading your email, right? You want to go in and get your something done. You want to go make that calendar appointment and, and make that change. But you generally, you know, aren't hoping to just the endless scroll where it never stops. And we just keep feeding you more data underneath, right? Where, you know, the, the social apps are kind of designed the opposite, right? They, they want to continue to bait you to make one more scroll, one more scroll, just to get a few more eyeball seconds on that screen. So that eventually, or depending on how, where they are in their monetization journey, kind of, you know, sprinkle in an ad or sprinkle in some, you know, monetization models for them. So. Yeah. I mean, actually your app is actually a better fit from my stalker, you know, uh, the concierge model, right? Because your apps are making it more convenient, but they're also giving, uh, you know, they're, they're making the time more productive for the person, right? So it's a nice combination of increasing convenience and also making their lives more productive. So yeah, that's actually. Uh, if I had spoken to you before, I would have mentioned your app in my book, or maybe in the <laughs> next portion. <laughs> so the developer really has to have a very clear understanding of what their app is trying to do and how users will relate to that app and what users want to get out of it. I mean, Kevin, as you're designing product, where does that that understanding of the user come into play? I mean, obviously, thinking about the user is probably the most important thing and probably one of the hardest things we do is because. When you're building an app at the scale of you know billion users, right? There's that's a lot of users to have to understand their use case, right? And the use case of you know for myself, where I have multiple email addresses, I you know receive hundreds of emails a day and send you know anywhere between 100 and 200 emails a day on an average day is very different than a consumer who is used to checking their mail maybe once a week or in China where a majority of their communication is not over email, it's over chat apps like WeChat or or WhatsApp or something like that. And so, um, but, but clearly the, you know, professionals in China that do have email do use email apps and do check their email, but just at a very different frequency. And then the, and the type of email that they get is, is very different. And in many cases you talk to them and it's like, it's the promotional or the sign up email to enable them to go do something else on WeChat or, you know, to kick off a coupon or something like that. And so, but as we think about, you know, an outlook in an office, you know, divine experiences is, you know, you can start with yourself, but, you're not the user, right? Like you're generally not going to map back to the broad masses. And so I think the more important thing is not looking at a specific user, but it's that 
the ability to have the app be adaptable, right? So the app should be just as flexible for somebody like myself from inbox zero. You know, I never have more than a handful of emails in my inbox. So I'm very aggressive about triaging and moving them to archive, but you know, less than 5% of the users in the world are inbox zero, right? Like that, that, you know, we, we look at the stats and most people are what we call pilers, right? Where they just let emails pile up in their inbox and they kind of have this infinite scroll and they have hundreds or thousands of emails unread and they kind of have a mental barrier of kind of what they've managed or what they've done and they know things where they're at. Um, but we need to design an app that works for both, right? Like some apps are filers, right? Where they have like hundreds and hundreds of folders kind of from the old desktop or file system era where they're used to putting emails in folders. Um, and so we need an app that works well for people that have hundreds of folders or like myself who has literally one folder called archive and I just move everything to archive. Um, and so as a developer, when you think about wide scale, uh, you can start with a, with a, and be opinionated and have an opinionated uh, design when you develop an app. But I think the most important thing is to listen to users and look at the usage and understand and evolve, right? So we're constantly, I mean, here we've been building this app for, you know, from a and outlook together, you know, over four years. Um, and we're still not done, right? There's tons and tons of work to do to make it better, to try to remove the number of taps, right? Like one of the things we track, how long does it take to send an email? How many taps does it take to send, to create a calendar event, right? Removing the number of the friction in that. And then you have to say, oh, that may be different for somebody who's, you know, when they see an email, they want to triage it into a folder versus somebody who wants to just let it scroll by and they don't do anything, right? And so we, we need to design the app in a way that it's, you know, kind of scales up. And it's like you mentioned responsive web design. At some level, this is like responsive. The app needs to be responsive to usage, right? And um, just like when I go into a GPS or something and I start to type, it remembers what I've typed before, the location in the calendar event. It remembers that, oh, I like to meet at Starbucks. Well, it's not the Starbucks in Seattle. It's the one in San Francisco. It's not the one in New York. Um, but again, when I'm in New York, it is. I go to Dunkin' Donuts. That's the place I want to meet people, right? Or, you know, we're going to start in the, our morning there, right? And so, being able to know the difference and understand that context is something that, you know, we're, it's a challenge, right? Because we do have a lot of data and app context, but taking advantage of that in a delightful way where the user is not A, creeped out by it, but, uh, mm -hmm. or B, that it doesn't become a pain where you're recommending stuff that just doesn't make sense. Anindo, has your research looked at this issue of the data providing that delightful experience versus being creeped out? What, it, what about the whole privacy? And we had a question from... Uh, Arsalan Khan on Twitter about that as well. Yeah, no, in fact, uh, you know, we've done a ton of work in this space uh, in, in trying to evaluate, uh, you know, how consumers react to these things. And you know, a couple of things. One is people often ask me about, you know, uh, are there locational differences between, you know, folks in, you know, China or US or Brazil or Germany or South Korea? I actually did not find any major locational differences. I found generational differences, as in the millennial in Sao Paulo or in uh, New York City or in Shanghai or Mumbai is, or Seoul is very, very similar. And then the opposite is true for, let's say, baby boomers. So there are generational differences in how people react to these things, not a whole lot of necessary locational differences. Um, but also in terms of you know, the, the user experience, uh, people say, look, we want two things. Uh, notice and consent, right? So when a brand says, I'll notify you about how you're going to use your data and then we'll seek your consent, that's all people are looking for. So when we did these you know, projects in large shopping malls using the Wi-Fi technology and beacons to send people targeted offers by tracking the trajectories, right? It was a simple two-step process. When you sign up for the Wi-Fi, you are told you have two choices. 
If you opt in, we will monitor your trajectories in the shopping mall. In return for opting in to give us your data, we will send you highly targeted and less frequent offers. Or you don't opt in and you still can use a Wi-Fi, but then you're not going to be able to get these offers, right? So you're, you're laying this out in a very simple, crisp manner to people. And most people will say, okay, I understand the economics of it. You're asking me to give up my data in return. You will send me, you'll put money back in my pocket, right? Great. Fantastic. So we are seeing 81% opt-in rates in shopping malls that get 100,000 people every day. That's 80,000 people saying, take my data and give me a relevant offer, but don't like, you know, overwhelm me with too many notifications. I mean, being able to have users, you know, set that preference and decide on what lever they want to say and say, hey, we can provide you the experience where we'll auto-suggest, you know, the locations based on on the location data in the phone, or you can deny that preference and say, we don't, we won't want that. But um, it's a super important right. thing that the, you, you get the user's consent. And then you also respect the consent that you give them, right? Because a lot of times you'll see apps that abuse that where they'll ask for, you know, location, or they'll ask for background access to your data or something, but then use it for something else, right? Or you'll start to see they're sending offers that are targeted. You're like, wait, well, that's not what you said you would use my location for. You said you would use it for this, but you're doing it for something else. And so I think it's a super important point as we're developing apps that we're super clear and upfront um, in a frictionless way, right? Just say, hey, this is a feature. And we try not to like prompt for all kinds of uh, permissions on the app when you first install it. It's, it's as you use it. You say, oh, you get to this point and say, hey, we could insert uh, your location information in this email if you want to send your location to somebody, or we could recommend this. And then at that point, it gives you that choice. Would you like us to look or not, right? And then, of course, once you you know, get that permission, then you need to respect that and use it for what you've asked for and not uh, abuse it for some other purpose. Exactly. And that's when you become the butler. And if you end up abusing, you become the stalker. Exactly. So we've been talking about mobile experience. And one part of that relates to your relationship with HelpShift, which I'm so grateful made it possible for us to do this show by underwriting CXO Talk. And so tell us about that aspect, that su support, the role of mobile support, and what are you doing with HelpShift? So we've been using HelpShift, you know, before we were even acquired by Microsoft. So as part of Accompli, and you know, for for me, it was a very personal thing, right? When we started the app, there was literally two users. It was uh, my wife and my co-founder's wife, right? Um, other than the, the people in the company, and you know, we'd get home at night. And they would say, hey, I had the problem with this app or this thing didn't work. And this is, a mat, you know, imagine an app that's weeks old, right? That's still hard. Certain kind of emails don't render or certain things don't work. And they would start to show us something or explain it to you. And you're like, oh, I need this data or I need to, you know, connect the app to my, you know, Xcode to download the, you know, the iPhone logs or whatever off the app. And then we realized over time that we needed a better way and more scalable way to do that. And so we started inviting friends and family. And obviously more and more people started to use the app. We needed a scalable but yet delightful way to capture um, and communicate with our users. So capture debug data, but then communicate with them. And so from the very early days, we had this in-app support that was provided by HelpShift, which was a very rich kind of two-way conversation. And so if you think of most consumer apps today, they make it very, very hard to contact the company because of the scale they've reached. They don't actually want to talk to you, right? They, they, don't, they want you to go through a bunch of FAQs or hoops. And you can imagine, you know, trying to cancel your cable service or call in on a help call, right? The number of menus you have to get through before you actually get to a human is hard. And we wanted to lower that barrier. And so in Outlook and, and previously Accompli, you literally tap settings, help, contact support, and you open a two-way chat with the team. And so even today at the scale we're at today, we, we handle tens of thousands of support tickets a day 
um, on, on from the mobile device, right? And so people come in and granted, we have a, a slightly bigger team now that's managing those inbound support transactions. But in the, I mean, the first day, I, the first, you know, kind of early session, I did 4,000, you know, tickets myself over the first year. Or so uh, we were much smaller at the time. Um, but being able to talk to users and have that conversation with them directly and provide them problems, we see, you know, very frequently users come and say, hey, this doesn't work, or I, I really want you to build this feature. Um, and it's become invaluable to us, right? And it's the data that we get and feedback that we get from them to say, hey, uh, this isn't working for me and this is why, or I ran into a bug or I saw a problem and we're able to capture that um, information in, in pl pl place where they're at and not have to say, oh, can you go and try to reproduce it or do this? It's like, no, you just go right into the app and we can, you know, you can contact support. You don't have to call a phone number and then try to explain to me what's going on. It's really interesting to me that you felt so strongly about this need for mobile support right from the beginning of the company when you had two users. And of course, now you have hundreds of millions of users. And it sounds like your viewpoint has remained constant in that. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I mean, now HelpShift is in, is in almost all of the Outlook uh, products inside of Microsoft, right? And it's moving into other parts of Microsoft as well. Other teams have adopted this model um, of basically bringing support in, inside the application, right? Users want their problem solved. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'd love to contact support, right? They just say, hey, I ran into an issue. How can I quickly get it solved? And whether you're in Word or PowerPoint or you're on Outlook.com with your webmail, or you're in, you know, on your Mac Outlook client on your desktop, whatever it is, you should be one tap away to just, you know, tap help, contact support, and type in your problem. And then if you want to send a screenshot, there's a button for that so you can see what you're talking about. Versus you think of the way traditional support works. Um, and many apps today, you still have an app and you open it up and it says, here, call, right? You know, click onto this and call American Express and talk to them. And you're like, dude, really? I didn't have a problem with the, <laughs> with the mobile app. And now I need to have a conversation. You're like, well, I see this screen and this. And then the agent's like, who are you? And what is, you know, what are you calling about? And give me all this information about you. Or, you know, going back to our earlier conversation about the butler, like our support people are kind of like butlers, right? Because I tap in-app support. I already know what device you're on. Are you running the latest version of the app? You know, 10% of our support tickets, the user files the support ticket from an older version of the app. And the, sol the solution is automatic. It's like, hey, we noticed you're running an app version that's more than three weeks old. Please go to the app store and just update. And, you know, a huge number of issues are solved that way, right? Whereas if you thought of calling a phone number, it's like, oh, what version are you running? Well, how do I even know what version of the app I'm running on my phone, right? And just imagine the, the painfulness of that conversation of like, what's your name again? Are you, are you a customer or not? Like for us, 100% of our support tickets come from customers because they had to have the app to even file the support ticket. So it creates a bunch of really, really awesome incentives that even at scale actually continue to pay benefits for us. How do you do this at the scale I mean, it's almost inconceivable for most, for me, for most people uh, to think about how you do this at the scale at which you operate with Microsoft Mobile App. How do you do it? Yeah. So, I mean, it, a lot of it's the software, right? I think the, you know, the average time that we spend on a support ticket is is less than five minutes, right? And, and that's, you know, in, in normal support ticketing world, it's 15 to 45 minutes where support, you know, of the total time between phone calls and emails and all that for, to solve a support solution. And part of that is because the context, right? It's this Butler notion of, hey, I tap on settings, I tap contact support, and the, the support person literally has to ask nothing and they instantly see what phone I'm working on, how much battery life I have, how much storage left on my device, all of this context that they can see and quickly help you troubleshoot and say, oh, look, the reason this isn't working is you're out of storage or it looks like your network's been dropping, right? You instantly get this diagnostic kind of packet that 
um, can be solved. And today, already about 15% of our tickets are solved without even going to a human that would have went to a human because we look at the details of those diagnostics and are able to tell the user like, oh, we saw this error and we know that this error means that you need to go do this thing. Oh, you're on Apple and you turned on two-factor auth but forgot to enable it, right? And so the big part of the scale comes from the ability to have that context and then the ability to have a really rich agent software that uh, HelpShift provides to make it super efficient for our agents. And HelpShift is prov provides the infrastructure for this. That's correct. So we have just a few minutes left, and there's so much that we haven't spoken about. Uh, so, so let me ask you both to answer this question to, to uh, in like a tweet bite sized size uh, security. How do we handle security on mobile devices since we're carrying them around? Everything I own is on my mobile device. How do we handle that? What I would tell the average person is, uh, you know, we're not ever going to live in a world that's impeccable, right? In, in the sense that the relationship between, you know, hackers and uh, the rest of the world will always remain adversarial. So, um, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever be in a world where we'll never have to worry about the security of our data. But by taking very simple precautions, I think we can eliminate maybe 95% of those risks. And I'm willing to live in a world where I can eliminate the vast majority of those risks in order to benefit from the upside of all that can happen through my mobile device. Yeah, I think my answer is similar in the sense that it's sort of like the privacy question earlier, like what are you comfortable sharing? And I think security kind of maps back to that, like, you know, what have you shared with your device? And is, is it worth the risk or the benefit, right? You're saying, hey, well, I want the most secure digital way. It's like, well, I have no computers. I could live in a hut in the middle of the forest and have nothing around me, right? And say, well, I'm super secure, but now the tigers might get me or the animals <laughs> might get me, right? And so I think there's, you're like, well, I want to live in a neighborhood or I want to live in this particular area or I want to, you know, do, you know, interact with mobile devices. And I think so from a mobile perspective, I think it's, you know, to, you know, companies are trying always to get better at this and, and to look for opportunities to improve it. Um, but I think the the most, you know, do some common sense stuff, right, in terms of from a user perspective to, you know, use the tools that are at your disposable to, you know, set a good password, you know, enable two-factor auth and those kind of things. But there's always going to be this constant struggle between, you know, what's the balance between how much security you want and how much, um, you know, freedom do you want to have in, in, in passing data back to your device? My last question to each of you, you're both researchers and practitioners, and you're in touch with all these users and the largest companies in the world. You're doing these, you're both doing these amazing things. And so that means that your crystal ball should be better than our, meaning like the rest of the people out there is crystal ball and certainly better than mine. And so where is all of this going? What will the impacts be on developing economies versus developed economies and, and on the world? What's the fundamental impact on the world that mobile will have? It's still early, right? I mean, it's still early innings in terms of the pervasiveness of you know, I think we let off the call with like, what's the impact of the economy, right? It's still a small fraction of total GBP, you know, in terms of how mobile's having an impact, it's a huge impact, but it's still pretty early, right? There's still uh, an incredible amount of growth, both in the time that people spend on their devices and the power of these devices and being able to better leverage uh, the context that you give them to basically provide a more delightful ex early experience. And so I think the the opportunity, there's still more ahead of us than are, it's behind us. And I think that's pretty exciting, right? In terms of 
giving us opportunity. And I think it's a, it's going to take, um, you know, take a lot of work to, to try to make that better, but it's also, uh, it's pretty exciting to just know that there's more opportunity ahead of us than behind us. Yeah, and I think we've already seen all these examples in the developing world where mobile has fundamentally transformed people's lives you know, from minimizing frictions in payments to maximizing returns from agriculture to helping spread important aspects of healthcare and so on. So I, I, I think you know, the world's going to be a better place because of the presence of mobile devices and not uh, you know, the other around. Well, this has been a very fast 45 minutes. You have been watching episode number 250 of CXO Talk, and we have been speaking with Professor Anindyo Ghosh from New York University and Kevin Henriksen from Microsoft. Thank you so much for being here with us. And thank you to HelpShift for underwriting this episode. And uh, tune in again next week. We have another amazing show coming up. And thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.